Welcome to the Future Fossils Podcast. This is Michael Garfield. And I'm Evan Snyder, and we have a great guest today, a great comedian on Netflix, also on Twitter and uh, elsewhere. We'll post links uh, down in the notes of the show. And Shane, I also saw you on Conan, your first performance ever uh, on TV uh, back yeah. in the day with a different haircut. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit. I, I sometimes put product in my hair now when I perform. For the ladies, I got to let them know that I still have a nice, healthy hairline. So <laughs> you know this because your your Netflix special was on human mating behavior. Yeah, it was. That was kind of my first whack at doing like a theme thing and trying to interject science and, into my act. And I, what I did like about it was it was like very accessible to just about anybody. I liked that I could like perform that show and. Dallas, Texas, or wherever, and have like cowboys come up to me afterwards, be like, "Man, I never thought I'd laugh at science." But um, <laughs> what I didn't, what I didn't like about it was that I didn't really, it, I didn't really push it or challenge myself as as much as I could have, just because I wanted, I wanted it to be as accessible as possible, and then which which ultimately ends up making things a little boring. But um, but it was a good lesson to learn. My my last album, my big break, which um, get more details at shanemossmausss.com, and um, and now I'm doing a psychedelic show live that uh, that I'm I'm pushing things a little further, getting into some bigger ideas on stage, in my opinion. Definitely. In fact, that's kind of where I'd like to pick this up, Shane, because some friends and I went and saw your your stand-up in Austin the other night, and uh, we talked a little bit about this on Third Eye Drops podcast the other day, you and I, with, mm -hmm. with Michael Phillip. This podcast is about time and like our place in time, and your stand-up is this freaky and wonderful blend of thinking about the human brain and psychology and... That is a quote that's going on the... Uh, 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 Freaky and wonderful blend. I, I, I love that. The the touch point is that right before we got on this this call, Evan and I were discussing our frustrations with the pace of modern life. Insofar as this podcast is framed or conceived as a, an honest and authentic window into this place and time for people of the future to appreciate and, and enjoy and learn from. We talked about this, like I was saying, on Third Eye Drops this issue of attention span and the pace of things and how like as things are speeding up, uh, we're getting better at extracting information from the tsunami, but it's also really pushing us as, as like biological creatures. Without asking any kind of particular question, I feel like that'd be kind of an interesting place to pick it up. I'm sorry, what were we talking about? <laughs> First off, people of the future, I'm talking to you from uh, just a, an amazing time to be alive. I'm sorry that you're living in your current situation. I don't know where everything went wrong. My guess is it <laughs> probably it started with Obama, as far as I can tell. Thanks, dude. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, this is just glorious. We don't really have any problems, and people are super bright right now, and just everything's Everything's wonderful. And we've worked out all of our social issues too, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, along, these, along these lines and along the lines of attention span, um, we're also able to become more specialized. I mean, podcasts are really taking off. Morning radio, which when I first started headlining eight years ago or so, 
morning radio was a very big deal and you had to do all this morning radio and you really had to kill it and that's what would get people in and it was the morning zoo um, nonsense and and this is all most people had access to and so I mean maybe another factor because I was the one that brought up and was complaining about the short attention span in people mm-hmm. but we have so many more choices there, there could be some choice paralysis in there or or as or maybe it's making it harder to appreciate one thing when you're thinking of the million other possibly better things that you could be doing. But it's amazing that we can have discussions like this that other people are going to hear. We were talking about on the third eye drops how, how coal mine workers in the late 1800s would go and see science lectures afterwards. And I was kind of, I was complaining about where did that go? And um, maybe it's it is, yeah. Maybe it's happening right now. Yeah, I mean, your your podcast is almost <clears throat> almost entirely interviews with scientific researchers, mm-hmm. and in that sense, I, you know, this is kind of interesting that we even are able to get three people into the same. <laughs> this is this is hilarious uh, for anyone listening. Shane actually came over to my place <laughs> while, <laughs> while he was in town uh, to to record this, and and due to. Uh, the... I should just go through all of the emails right now and read them, <laughs> so I don't feel as foolish as I feel. And, no, 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 no. For your address, if I wasn't coming over. Yeah, talk about talk about uh, the confusion of modern existence. Yeah. yeah. So we actually we couldn't get the cable sorted out. So he's actually in the next room on. <laughs> so when I say that uh, it's kind of amazing that we can get three people in the same room. Then I'm using the word room with the, the scare quotes that will be understandable to an imagined future population that's used to telepresence through virtual reality. It doesn't <laughs> right. think of room as a physical space, but is like a, the chat room that we're all projecting our far better looking holograms into. Well, to, to highlight how Stone Age it is currently relative to, to that theoretical horizon, uh, when you requested that I, I fax you a headphone splitter, Michael, I mean, I, I thought instantly, like, I can actually send you an Instructables to that, and if you have the materials in your garage, in five to ten minutes you might actually be able to do that, depending on your proficiency with soldering and, and wiring, etc. So, I mean, we are kind of going up into an asymptotic ascent towards whatever. Um, I don't know <laughs> what. <laughs> you, you can send it to your uh, your 3D printer. You know, you could. Uh, I, I yep. talked with a sex researcher who um, who makes 3D printed dildos and um, and has all you know just to, to test what what actual size because it's pretty unreliable when women report their preferred size. And I asked her if the, I guess this is now freeware. Like she put all of the, (laughs) so if you have a 3D uh, printer, you could all do it. So maybe that would be like the future of dick pic. (laughs) Yours and then the lady could print it out. And we're we're just going to find more and more ways to disgust women in the future. (laughs) Right. Ways. Well, you know, deck picks are far more honest than like the uh, the average man's assessment and mass of of their own measurements as well. It seems that that's equally, if not far more, unreliable. So uh, the closer we can yeah. get to, to the uh, the yeah, actual I functional, yeah, I can no longer call it my hog when when, <laughs> it's, when it's a picture. You know, like, well, for that, it's it's missing four hoes, for example. It's not a ruminant, uh, animal, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. Is it a, is it a, an appropriate time then to get into the issue of teledildonics? 
Well, uh, the the, uh, the growing the the emergent market in which uh, people can stimulate one another sexually because this is this is uh, to try and tie this sort of uh, sophomoric thing into this larger thing, it's like uh, wirelessly attached to your brain, so you're actually feeling it. And they've actually done that now. They've got they've got the dildos that that a, like a woman can wear that stimulate her internally while she's penetrating someone else. So like it's only a matter of time before you link that up with the kind of stuff where they're sending uh, the neural stimulation from yeah. one person's brain when they look at a blue light and then the other person has the sense experience of looking at a blue light. You gotta wonder like how long can the human actually stay in the loop there? It's missing the, the underlying physiological context of especially with respect to women's perception uh, smell. like. Unless that teledildonic smells like the man they're interested in, then uh, I'm not sure how useful it will be. I really respect that we're still wired like mammals and we respect and act with each other on chemical levels that sometimes we don't consciously have to even process or understand. They just happen because that's, uh, that's good engineering in a way, you know? Like, uh, if, if we can perfect that smell algorithm, you know, like these companies that are, are specializing in... in uh, allowing us to smell colognes and perfumes digitally on some kind of Amazon marketplace. Um, maybe we can get close enough, but I, I, there's just no replacement for the real thing. And that, that's where I want to like walk it back a little bit to, instead of talking about teledildonics, which I'm, I'm more than down to discuss uh, at length, uh, <laughs> unintended uh, at the end of the, the podcast maybe, but for now I really want to walk it back to the idea of cognitive dissonance and especially buyer's remorse, because there is a psychologist at Texas A&M who is the co-researcher and co-editor of a study into cognitive dissonance called Cognitive Dissonance Progress on a Pivotal Theory in Social Psychology. And uh, there's a lot of fascinating studies like his that have been done as of late showing a correlation between not just a drop in people's attention spans, but inability to, to basically process the amount of real-time data that we have access to. It's not a failing of, of, of who we are, it's an outstripping of our mammalian and biological capacity to some extent. Well, I mean, some of this stuff is our brains also misinterpreting what is efficient. You don't want to use any more energy than what you have to, and so if it might not be that we don't have the capacity. It might be that our brains aren't quite understanding the importance of what some of this information might be. Yeah, well, like uh, Facebook notifications, the way that the people who write apps for phones, you know, they're really trying to get your attention. Mm. And they're going to do everything in their power to co-opt the neurological mechanisms that filter information for us and allow us to determine you know what's going on they recently had that uh that research project with the two l-shaped antennas that picked up that that massive like thousand plus contributors scientific paper that they said they picked up gravitational waves for the first time the sound of two black holes colliding right mm -hmm. and then you listen to it and it's like bloop bloop it sounds exactly <laughs> like the the little like you got a text message hey the bloop so, the bloop uh -huh. recording is one of the coolest recordings ever made so I, st right. I stand by the idea of the bloop itself but as for that recording it is a little bit uh, anticlimactic well yeah except except that it sounds like that yeah except that now i'm wired to think i'm getting a text message when i hear that sound <laughs> and like the idea that this minor kind of inconsequential little thing the, the you know the trillions of messages that we all get every day sounds just like one of the most like <clears throat> epic, intense things in the universe. 
Yeah. I know that that's, you know. Well, do you know about the bloop, the actual, like, bloop itself, kind of uh, in the parlance of, of audiophiles and, and sort of Xeno audiophiles out there? Go on. So there are Navy listening stations uh, underwater throughout the world in territories that we patrol that listen in on broad frequency ranges underwater. Several years ago, uh, there was a recording of a very strange sound that is now called the bloop that uh, a lot of corners of the internet relate to ideas of Cthulhu or like some kind of giant underwater uh, organism. But basically, there is some large uh, phenomena underwater that created the sound that we, uh, as of yet, have not identified the origin of. It's appropriate given that it's starting to rain quite heavy outside, so any background rain in the recording, I hope that's a nice environmental touch and in context of the watery uh, concept I just mentioned. But... Uh, I, I wanted to just, again, take the information <laughs> back to where we were. And, and uh, Shane, uh, before, I didn't introduce you properly because I wasn't sure how to uh, pronounce your last name. Shane Moss, uh, we're really grateful to have you on. For, for me personally, like, comedy is one of those like direct connects. It's almost like a universal serial bus where if, if people are laughing, you know it's because they're really paying attention. Like, that, that I.O. is operating as per spec, you know? And the same with music and, and a lot of other phenomena, but comedy is especially... I think relate in that fashion. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also there are definitely social factors as well, where um, you'll see, like on my first album, I had this joke that was just strange. It was about traveling. It was about getting a sex change so you could travel back in time to impregnate yourself. And, <laughs> um, and it was so like weird to people that people like wouldn't want to laugh or that you know they're worried about being judged if they laugh at it or whatever and I was like convinced that this is a funny concept and a, and a funny idea and, and my punchlines and stuff before were good and comics seemed to like it which is usually a good sign and it just bombed all the time and then I, I just um, I, I would still just throw it out there once in a while and on my album recording I already had multiple shows. I already did three shows. They all could have been used. And so on the fourth one, I just got really drunk and um, just just did a whole bunch of other different stuff just in case something funny happened. And I threw that joke out there. And it was like the only time that it ever worked, pretty much. And um, I decided to put it on my album. And then that ended up being the joke that like any reviewer was like, if you hear one joke, listen to this. And because there's a difference then between if you're alone in your car, free to laugh at whatever you want, that's different than being in this crowd where there's these pressures to laugh or not laugh. And the reverse of that is you'll see a lot of like hacky comedians crushing and killing the room. But if you look closely, you'll see like a lot of eyes rolling as well. It's just the people know like they're kind of supposed to laugh. We were talking about that uh, a week ago. I was hanging out with Randall Roberts, who's another spectacular painter that had just painted at this festival, and we were hanging out afterwards. And we were talking about how people look to the guy with the deepest voice in the room to see if it's appropriate to laugh. That kind of thing. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't remember the study that he cited, but maybe you do, and I'm sure it's easy enough to find online, where they, they took a high-speed video of a fraternity hazing and they watched where, you know, you've got this really clear social hierarchy set up. Right. And they, they watched as someone told a joke and then the president of the frat laughs first. And then you can watch as 
everyone looks at him to see if it's okay to laugh. <laughs> and then they start that's laughing, and the last guy right. to laugh at like 32,000 frames a second or whatever, the last guy to laugh is the frosh that's getting hazed. Yeah. <laughs> but he does so laugh. He still laughs, though, at the end, you know, once it culminates. Right, right. But this, but like, if we don't, <clears throat> there's another thing where we're getting into that issue of the difference between being online, being alone in your car, being in a room together with a bunch of people, you know, like, would we have had a Cold War scare, like a nuclear apocalypse scare like we did, if the people that we trusted with nuclear weapons were not stuck in these submarines? You know, they're like getting high on each other's fear pheromones. You know, this notion of being like in a room with somebody versus alone, sometimes it works in your favor, right? And then sometimes it creates these weird little pocket scenarios where the the actual balance is totally skewed and, and impossible conclusions. People come to these like ridiculous ideas. I think that's the, that is the concern is that because I, I do think it would be possible to have these true simulations in the future. It would start off pretty rough at first where where you'd filter in like oxytocin or whatever into the room. But I mean, if you think about a dream, if you're having sex in a dream, it feels just as good to you uh, unless she's got like, you know, four tits or something like that and you get freaked out. But or, yeah. or her whole body's covered in teeth. There is that alternative, which is not the best. <laughs> yeah, that's not so good. <laughs> but it can feel just as real. And, and, and so why wouldn't, um, virtual reality be able to tap into the same sort of thing somehow to both of your points we'll miss something along the way we'll probably miss factoring in something that could probably create some real issues I would love to smell my like dead wife's ghost through her Facebook profile you know like the, yeah that's that a whole thing. idea like at the end of American Beauty when she's she's just discovered her husband's body and she goes into the closet and she tears down all of her, his clothes, mm -hmm. you know, and like that, that stuff is so crucial to who we are as people. And yeah. it's really hard to see how we're going to land that in the digital environment in a way that brings the, the warmth and the humanity of this experience into that place. You know, if you think about online dating, now, now there's all these services and I don't know how credible they are, but it, you know, they're, do, they're doing like, you wear a t-shirt and, and go and work out and sweat in this t-shirt and then you send it in and they pull out, which would be the major histocompatibility genes and then yes! match. You know, this is uh, one of my very good professor friends is, is kind of one of the leaders in, in these fields. And, and some, some of the results that she finds are, are quite interesting and it's, because you can show women like pictures of, of guys and they'll kind of agree on what they're into. It, it changes with ovulation and stuff, but the, the, there's, there's a pretty good consensus and what they're, but then if you show them uh, a bunch of, uh, or, or if you have them smell a bunch of shirts, they'll be all over the map because everyone has a different immune system that's going to uh, integrate with someone else's immune system um, differently. And, and so, it seems like vasopressin might have something to do with people's monogamy threshold or whatever it might be where, you know, the famous bull study where there's these bulls and some of them are crazy and monogamous and parabond and other ones are extremely promiscuous and they look and the key ingredient seems to be that one has vasopressin and one doesn't and when they switch it around they completely change their mating behavior and it seems like humans 
that with this um, have varying degrees of this vasopressin, and the people that have more vasopressin tend to be more monogamous. And maybe that would be something that would be interesting to vet if you could be like, I'm this monogamous or or this promiscuous, and I want to find someone along this same line. Or I'm willing to to do CRISPR gene editing on myself to match this person that I'm interested in. A total polyamorous, from judged by your vasopressin levels. Like it might seem medieval in, in retrospect at some point in the future that that like uh, Tinder and OkCupid did not have a 4D element of uh, olfactory input and exchange. Mm. You know that it might be uh, identified as such a pivotal functional variable in the overall success or otherwise of a relationship, whether it is polyamorous or, or uh, dedicated or not, that could change the game and to the point where we wouldn't need to change ourselves because there would be enough clear opportunity. Yeah, I, and I, I really think it will. I mean, look, I mean, what, what's online dating right now or the arts of online dating was just a bunch of people saying they liked hiking, you know, it, it wasn't really getting anyone anywhere. And, um, and and there's been some significant advances since then. So if you take that and factor in how you could maybe find collaborators in the same way, we might find better ways of testing, certainly like the criminal system where a jury takes one look at a black guy and decides that he is guilty. Maybe in addition to being able to provide more cues like this, like we would in dating, we can figure out what cues we should be eliminating to make things more fair and just. Totally. So there's like, on the one hand, you've got this kind of awesome paradox that in order to make more informed, rational decisions, we have to actually dig down into the, the limbic and hypothalamic and, and get into all of this stuff that is, you know, historically at least regarded as purely irrational you know, the, the, the animal meat thing that for the last few hundred years we've been trying to redact. But then bringing all this stuff up reminds me uh, a while back, there was a, an episode of Christopher Ryan's Tangentially Speaking podcast in which he talks about meeting the guy that before the age of Photoshop was responsible for airbrushing the penthouse models into the magazine. And he said that the, the real shock was not just that they take a woman and make her look you know, uh, more like this ideal that Penthouse created, but that they were actually stitching together images of different women. I mean, like, like so like somebody's face and then somebody oh, else's really? body and somebody's yeah. legs. And technically being able to do that before Photoshop kind of amazes me, but it's also totally gross. And yeah. the yeah. thought, the thought of like the porn industry will pick up on the fact that some, some people just smell better, but they don't necessarily look better. So you're going to get the, uh, the Castellet stars, the ones that have like the, they just like donate their juice to be like digitized so that yeah. an image of someone else that's actually a composite of five other people smells like they do. It's like, oh yeah, like you're the, you know, it'll be like, um, will, will, will this be, um, uh, it, will it be on PC to call this virtual reality program Frankenslot? <laughs> Possibly, especially when we start mixing in smells. Like another thing that, that comes to mind is is how weird it will be in the future to see perhaps porn stars that specialize in their scent and or like biomatter. Because like, for, for example, uh, there was a study done recently showing that eating pussy is basically good for you because you're interchanging with a new uh, biome on a direct one-to-one uh, -one contact level that interchanges certain bacterial populations and actually... 
can help improve your immunity and uh, even be maybe anti-carcinogenic. So, can you write this down so I can put it on a T-shirt after my show? I'm, I'm gonna make little little pink T-shirts that women can buy. I, I so would love that, to for know, everyone. You know, is it, is it uh, one pussy eating session per cigarettes or not necessarily? So, so like uh, with a compatible partner, for example, uh, which which is validating if you've been with somebody, uh, especially in both of our cases, Michael. I don't know about you, Shane, where where you're at, but uh, like I guess uh, there is some corollary evidence to suggest that if you're in a monogamous relationship with somebody who's highly biologically compatible, that eating pussy on the rig is still a good thing. Basically, mm. it's like having your probiotic. You're taking your acidophilus or whatever, but uh, it's much more complex and more dynamic, and actually already uh, adapted, uh, matched to your biology. Uh, if also dairy free. Muscle. And dairy free. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh... <laughs> I, can we can we shift it to talk about the stand up that you're doing right now, Shane? Because yeah, it, it kind of blew my mind in terms of talking about the like this being a record of this moment in history. And it occurred to me the other night that really you are, I don't know how you feel about this, but really, you know you're going out on a limb, putting an entire stand-up together on the, the subject of psychedelics. And I know that you might be more surprised than I am that it's been as successful as it has been, that it seems like that you were uh, savvy enough to recognize that we're standing right now in this moment in history where we have this closet effect and everybody wants to talk about this and nobody's doing it. Like nobody, like the fact that you're, to my knowledge, the first person that actually walked out onto this limb and threw down this full evening of psychedelic comedy kind of astounds me. Like it seems, it seems way overdue. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm the only one or not uh, that that's just, I mean, certainly there's other comics that talk about psychedelics sometimes in their act, like Doug Stanhope or Joe Rogan. I think Ari Shafir may have a show all about mushrooms, but I'm not sure about that. Um, I, and I think if he does, he only does it like at festivals once or, or a couple times a year or whatever. Um, don't quote me on any of that. But um, first off, it has been a grind figuring out how to put this all together and, and really the marketing aspect of it has has actually been pretty difficult. Maybe it's not that it was difficult so much as me having to relearn. I've never worked like kind of the indie scene as much. It was, it, this is the most I've done like little music venues, you know, with this where it's all self-promotion, where it's all on me to get people out. And then it's been a matter of figuring out, you know, how to manipulate Facebook better to peg people that are like-minded, you know, that are into psychedelic art or whatever it might be, well, rather than just broadly putting up an ad for the Austin area. And then using my own podcast to promote it and printing out cards so when I'm doing my regular show in comedy clubs to do it, you saw the best show that I've done of it. Yes! Uh, that was... That was one, I mean, I don't get to do it as often as I would would like, so every time I do do it, it's a bit more developed and polished, but it's also, I've never done it to 250 people before. When I started doing it, it was sometimes like 15, 20 people, and I was like, well, I, I just kind of believe in this idea, and I, and I think that I'm onto something, and I won't worry about the numbers, because it's not really ready yet anyway, and it's still kind of a work in progress, 
And now the, both the marketing is coming together at kind of the same time that the, that the hours, if the show ends up on Netflix, um, there's going to be a whole lot of people in this country smoking DMT. Yeah. I would love to see that special. That would be awesome, and I would I would probably watch on repeat and, and refer it to my friends. But um, there there are some precedents in the past for for what you're doing um, in terms of like the work of not just Joe Rogan and like Doug Stanhope, but also George Carlin, uh, mm-hmm. Bill Hicks, Bill Hicks, and and Duncan Trussell as well. Uh, oh yeah, and, yeah. I, I haven't seen Duncan Trussell do a full show, but. I think he's doing a fair amount of stuff about psychedelics as well. Yeah, he's definitely on that tip. And and what you were uh, uh, talking about a moment ago reminded me quite a bit of uh, many conversations that Michael and and a lot of our peers have had uh, in between moments where, you know, we've been backstage or um, are talking on Facebook about how to promote a new post and and trying to find the right way to um, match the supply and demand curve essentially uh, optimally. And when you start exploring these expanding limbs of conversational and, and comedic artistic opportunity and, and exploration, there are more puzzles that, that start to emerge as well. I think it takes a certain level of intrigue into the process of simply finding that cross between the supply and demand. Like it, it's a challenge to take that on, not just in the negative sense of it being more work, but in the positive of really learning uh, more about your audience, knowing your audience better, um, asking yourself what will make you happy in the long term versus what will make you money in the short term. And that's an underlying connective point to this podcast as well in terms of looking at the long now or uh, what will matter uh, 100 years from now or or the, the seventh generation phenomenon instead of just looking at the first generation that we're in now relative to our position in time. So um, I'm, I'm yeah. glad you're doing that, man. That, that's uh, really cool. I would love to see a special on it. Yeah, I mean, it, I was also kind of thinking as you're talking about that, about uh, what, what I've been doing with boosting a post for the city, like I mentioned, or with like, you know, age 22 to 45 or whatever it might be. Um, what I've been doing more of is exactly targeting fans of other people that are doing similar things like Duncan Trussell and Joe Rogan, so especially people that I've done, I've been guests on their podcasts, so their fans might recognize me, my name pops up. Perhaps one of the benefits of this kind of thing in marketing, so like one of the benefits is that people are able to find someone, you know, I had a lot of people come out in Austin that had no idea who I was saw it on Facebook and and we're like so thankful for afterwards like thank you so much for for doing this there's there's no no other outlet like this and and um, just like I'm kind of able to tie myself into circles that kind of already exist maybe this maybe as I build up then this circle expands a little bit and then other people that are interested in not just psychedelics but maybe interested in making science comedy talking about philosophy that sort of thing and maybe we're making it easier for, to get like-minded people into these circles of uh, of fans there's a there's a connection point between uh, what we're talking about with respect to matching your content and your your passion your uh, voice to your fans and listeners and people that would really enjoy what, what you're able to provide and to our prior conversation on biological compatibility with uh, respect to online dating or, or physical dating like it's really, in a way, a dance to find the, the matches. And, and we're now given more potential than, than ever, but at the same time, more input than ever for that potential matching process. So how have you been finding like the balance in that stream? And, and Michael, I'd like to get your, your kick on this as well before we go forward. Well, I just want to 
to mention that, and I know that we talked about this on Third Eye Drops just the other day, but Lord only knows how far it'll be between the release of those two, that uh, this, this issue uh, at the end of the show, we're talking about being sort of amphibious, you know, in, in this transition between the go to the library and look at an encyclopedia world and the knowledge on tap, like running water world. You know, while we're while we're talking about online dating and and long tail marketing and histo compatibility and all this stuff, there is this sense that I wanted to meet everyone else at your show. Mm. And right now, you know, you have Facebook ad targeting that you can use to get those people out, but it's not as clear. It doesn't really follow all the way through. Yeah, it's not as clear how we get those people, how we get everyone that's at Shane's psychedelic standup to meet everybody else and to stay communicating. And like, how do we actually, uh, like we, we're taking baby steps toward the, this ability to, you know, quote unquote, find the others, you know, like Timothy Leary said, mm-hmm. it's clear that we have a ways to go and that there are, there are some things that we can start doing like at, at your thing, just this notion of, well, hey, you know, because you're here, why don't you stick around 10 minutes and introduce yourself to some people and make yeah. some friends? I actually ran around uh, after I, I said goodbye to you that night and like stepped out of my comfort zone and like walked up to some some strangers and was like, hey, guys, you were here at the show. That means we probably ought to be friends. So here's my here's a sticker for you guys. OK, bye. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Super awkward, but like it's clear that this is important. That this is something that we should be striving for. That's really, yeah. really cute. It's not as awkward. It's cute. I gotta say, man. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, after I've been thinking a lot about this ever since, and I'm very, very happy that you suggested it because this is just, um, you know, something that uh, I missed. This is, uh, uh, this is the nice thing about life is that. Sometimes we're so focused on certain things and then, um, you know, you, you think of or are suggested a new idea and it can blow open a whole other uh, set of options for you that are that would. And this is something that would really be quite easy to do. So if I say do this, do this comedy show and then say we're going to have a 10 or 15 minute break, everyone grab a drink, go to the bathroom, have their cigarette, whatever they're going to do, go get high and and come back in and we're gonna, I'm going to just talk more about like say my DMT experiences or we'll do a Q&A or, or maybe everyone can, you know, fill out a question for me or something like that. Something along those same lines that the, the only requirement is each one of you has to go up and at least meet one stranger before you can come back in and introduce yourself. Silly little suggestion, but, but it, it could be a way to start forming these bigger circles and and like Michael pointed out I mean this would certainly benefit me if these groups of these parties of four and two and maybe ten at the most that are coming out to the show to amass this 250 people that are interested in this if a hundred of these people all form this circle of friends um, you know one they they just um, they're, they're, they just created a community of, of like-minded people, and, and I think that this stuff is pretty important to get down to the bottom of, uh, and uh, j- just how it makes us uh, think of new ideas and everything. But to have it guaranteed that those hundred people are going to show back up to my show and maybe start telling their coworkers and be excited and all that, I mean, it's just a win-win for everybody. 
Yeah, well, it, it seems in a way it's another utilization of like a biological life hack. Your life just got hacked kind of opportunity, <laughs> you know, like uh, it, it's effective and it, it's genuinely a positive, I think, in terms of building community. Because I think it's uh, sometimes not necessarily easy, but uh, prevalent for generators of any type of content to forget that a fan base is not just a group of people that look up to them, but that share a common connection. And in fact, is a community of which they are a part and not necessarily the sole facet of. You're the mushroom machine. <laughs> yeah, you're the uh, you're the fruiting body and, and the mycelic web of the people who really enjoy what you're doing, and we're we're connected in that right now as well. So after a, a show, sometimes my favorite thing to do would be uh, and still is to give everyone a hug that wants to get a hug. And usually by that time, I'm I'm really sweaty, so I have to give the disclaimer like if you want a sweaty hug, uh, it's free. And, and most people are, are down for that. It actually leads to, to group hugs and these, these collaborative, physical, and, and pheromonally exchangeable experiences. And, Plus, you're, uh, you're trading, you're giving them your germs. Provided it's from a genuine place, and, and I honestly like getting and giving the hugs at the end of a show. It's a great way to culminate the experience. Uh, it's a win-win, you know? It's smelly, but <laughs> it's something that uh, seems to be a benefit. There's a relationship also in terms of this uh, like psychedelic comedy being an idea whose time has come and the notion that there's this relationship between the exemplar or the performer and their responsibility or opportunity to knit together the community. But there's, there's something, the uh, metaphorical toolkit that psychedelics provided me that allows me to think about it in this way, like th to think that you're the fruiting body of this mycelial tour network community potential thing. It's like there's uh, this, this strategy or this way of articulating the, the connecting power of the internet with the physical presence and biological reality of these in-person events that it's, it's almost like maybe we, maybe we just weren't ready for just to, to discuss this issue because we weren't ready to like think about it in this way of like, oh, well, it seems like you must have known going into this that you're basically putting yourself on the front line. You're making yourself a target as an advocate, mm. you know, and that there is there's a sense in which in order to to be an advocate, like in order for Alex Gray to talk openly about the way that he has made psychedelics part of his spiritual practice, you actually require this herd around you that's that's sort of like your social capital. Whereas like, you know, maybe 40 years ago, if Alex had come out and said that, he wouldn't have had the community support required to keep him safe, required to like validate that that stance in society. And it's like, maybe that's what's required now in, either, in order to even have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, we don't give ourselves enough credit too. I, I thought that, um, wait like three or four years before I kind of had this show about psychedelics in my back pocket starting to get a little more attention with my science podcast and everything else and I wanted to wait because I, I have to look up these you know sometimes very serious academics and and there is a stigma with psychedelics and I don't want to be labeled as anything I don't want to be labeled as the psychedelic guy I don't want to be the science guy I don't want to I don't want to be anything I just want to I just want to be this shame that goes off and does all sorts of weird different things and gets to explore different uh, areas of life but the show came along very naturally I just decided to well I'll give it a try my agent was actually very supportive so we tried it a few times 
And, um, and it was kind of a surprise. I wasn't like bravely putting myself out there all that much until it started taking off. Then it's like, uh, you know, you gotta, (laughs) then it's like, well, no, no, my mom's asking me if I'm on drugs and like, how do I explain psychedelics to the family? (laughs) You know, it's, uh, so there's definitely, there's definitely social costs. If, If this does, become something popular like i make a special and it and it really takes off who knows how much criticism or whatever else i might might get from you know advocating drugs which i would actually look forward to i mean i would i would i would, I would love to uh um to debate people and whatnot but um but yeah it seems like the uh, the opportunity to to base a, a whole show off of a sort of left field context or a, or a non-beaten track uh, trajectory is in a way unique to our moment in time with respect to, to media and, and our ability to leverage uh, certain mass dissemination techniques as individuals. The pressure to really capitulate to a certain coalesced group of more common topics for the sake of a CBS special is no longer the, the clincher. Uh, mm. It sure must be awesome to be able to pull that off and, and uh, to be able to, to walk both uh, lines and find your, your path and whatever is available to the best fit of your ability and what you prefer to say, what you feel is your, your message, then uh, um, we're actually in a unique period of time. And to, to that extent, your mm. message to the future uh, at the beginning of the podcast as well is not necessarily all that sarcastic, you know, like uh, we are at a very amazing and then unique uh, moment in time and it is easy to forget that especially if we're inundated as i have been today with a ton of texts and emails there are uh some unique moments in time like this conversation now via skype to be able to talk as if we are relatively in in person to be able to hash out these ideas and have people listen in uh in a way that will be as direct a connection as, as possible I find myself as a, as a consumer of media as well as a, a producer, so to speak. I want to be able to, to find the things that I know are going to be very valuable to me right away. Like hunting on Netflix for the right thing to watch is, is one of the most like painstaking and, and annoying processes that I know of in order to be entertained. I actually would prefer to be able to have a list of suggestions that are genuinely what I would like to watch in that moment. And uh, not to sacrifice my privacy and my you know, uh, EKG information in that moment to uh, genuinely have more opportunities in the future to be... Uh, surrounded more with things that I knew will be stimulating and entertaining and interesting to me as a, as a listener and as an observer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for as much as I would normally say, oh, I hate social media, there's a, a lot of people in other countries or repressed regimes or whatever. America's nothing like that, of course. No, um, no way. Are, <laughs> are, are able to get actual information that, you know, maybe isn't controlled by their dictators or propaganda or whatever and you know of course propaganda is always going to be out there but uh just the very idea that um a, a guy like myself who is um relatively like i'm booked based on my credits essentially the club is basically selling my credits they're here's a guy who's been on x the y and z that's that's what they're selling a, a lot of i have fans but but the majority of People showing up are just like, ooh, that sounds impressive. He's been on Conan. Um, but but the idea that someone someone like me, who there's no one uh, knocking down my door to have me on things or whatever, but I, I still have opportunities to create stuff like this because, one, 
This stuff's just getting cheaper. It's getting cheaper to make these specials, so much cheaper. The camera work, the editing, you know, every, everything else is so much cheaper and easier than it used to be. Two, with things like Netflix, there, there's just a lot more of an outlet for it. And this is, this is much different than the old school days where you had, you had your three TV channels, so everyone is pretty much watching the same thing. And, and now, now where you can have like a show like Transgender or, or Black Mirror, or, and you can have your boring mainstream stuff as well, but it's opening up possibilities. And, and when there's a possibility in sources of information and entertainment, it's opening up possibilities for new ideas. I, I mean, we, we all have to adapt to our surroundings. So when you're in like a small town, your kind of psychology, these mechanisms are kind of just going to gear you toward believing in your local church or whatever, just because there's enormous social rewards for that. But now that there's new possibilities and new ideas taking off on social kind of digital world and entertainment that might create a revolution kind of in our own minds of what we're able to think about and accomplish and ideas that just haven't occurred to us before. Now's probably a good time to mention as an example of what you're talking about, how I went over to my buddy's house yesterday and he, and I don't know if I'm getting this because I'm regarded as sort of the token scientific guy among my friends or, or what, but my buddy was like, so what do you think of these flat earth videos? And I sat down and I watched like an hour and a half of arguments on the flat earth. When I talk to people about the way that our, our sense of self and our knowledge is reorganizing in light of our increased access to all these different points of view, because like most people nowadays, future listeners, are suffering the so-called filter bubble. That like there's a really beautiful way that, that this stuff allows us to access exactly the one other person in the world that loves this thing. Uh, but it also makes it so much easier for us to just hide out in what Robert Anson Wilson called our reality tunnel. You know, that's like, this is my point of view. And whenever I talk about this stuff with people, when people are looking for practical advice, the one thing that I'm like, in order to sort of thrive as a planet, we're going to have to step over that line and we're going to have to interact intentionally with people who are like inhabiting a different reality tunnel. And mm -hmm. I found it super fascinating to sit down and actually engage. It, it was a struggle. Like I did not want to sit there and listen to 90 minutes of flat earth arguments. But I did because one, it was super, just almost morbidly fascinating, you know, in that sense of like, how do people believe this? But then on the other hand, it was, it was interesting because it was, a, it was a, a rare opportunity as an adult. And I don't think most adults get this uh, unless they're working somewhere where it's required of them. But it's a rare opportunity to sharpen my uh, faculty for critical thinking and say, mm -hmm. okay, well, yeah, that, that makes no sense. Oh, you accidentally squared that value there uh, and such and such. Think about, oh, how do, we, how do we come to these understandings from the first principles? And how can I send a, like a, an olive branch to somebody that on Facebook, I might be inclined to just engage in a flame war with this person. I see a, an internet that we can smell because histocompatibility is about you getting along with the people that are not you. You know, like when they, they found that thing with the, the famous study where they had the women smelling the t-shirts. 
Yeah, this is this is so you want someone who's has an opposite immune system. Uh, yeah, which is which is why um, you know there's often a lot of um, interracial attraction. This otherwise very racist white person who finds themselves extremely attracted to someone outside of their race, and this is this is probably what's driving that. Yeah. So so the thought of well maybe for a better, uh, healthier, more robust society. We could be strengthening our collective psychic immune system by marrying out of our institutions that are composed of like all like-minded people or even within an institution, you know, the people that tend to work on the creative like R&D stuff are really free thinking. The CEOs tend to be really conservative in some respects and like getting more conversation going between them seems yeah. like, you know, how do we how do we find ways to encourage uh, like how do you. Have you have you thought at all about how to get people that are like afraid of psychedelics out to your show? This is like one of the. Uh, uh, this is why I ended up renaming the show "A Good Trip," and this is why I spend so much time. And it, and it's probably the least punchy part of my act is is kind of describing a bad uh, the idea of a bad trip and the kind of often what's a misunderstanding. I'm not saying you can't have a bad trip. I'm just saying that 95% of what people think is a bad trip is probably just a difficult trip that, that could have been very therapeutic had it been reframed had they known. And so, so I'm taking more time trying to explain that. But back, back to your point about seeing um, other ideas, you, you know, looking into the flat earth or whatever, I think something that's very exciting about that, getting people to think about um, different ideas, is is that it will make us dig more. One of the most fascinating and, and kind of troubling things about uh, human psychology is this kind of illusion of explanatory depth, uh, which is one of my favorite concepts, which is just that um, we think we know how something works. Of course we know the Earth is round. There's like a Galileo guy, or you know, makes you think a little, a little more, and, and something like global warming. Rather than just yelling at, at people and and saying, you don't believe in global warming because you're an idiot. Um, instead, how do you think the greenhouse effect works? What do you think the theory is that you're challenging? And most people aren't going to say all matter is comprised of mostly empty space and so what happens like in an actual greenhouse with glasses there's these beams of light that are narrow enough to get through this empty space in the glass and then those beams of light heat up the air inside but then because the air is thicker it can't escape through that same empty space that the light came through so it gets trapped and and then it warms this is why your car heats up and and uh, you know when it when it's outside, and it's, and so the same thing happens when carbon floats up and gets to this certain point, it becomes too dense for air to escape up through. So I think if people had to think that out, they'd be like, oh, oh, okay, that's that's how that. Yeah. Or or yeah. maybe they would construct better arguments anyway, rather than like God God said, as long as there's rainbows, we're not gonna flooded anymore well, <laughs> so, there, so there wasn't rainbows how did that so so light reflect uh, re reflected off of raindrops differently right it was so not rain that's why we had so many storms 
Right. Of course, yeah. So, so I mean, like, in a way, it's not necessarily a, uh, a failure of, of education or a failure of people's uh, cognitive capacity. It's, in a way, a, a, what we're talking about over the course of this podcast so far, which is a mismatch of inputs and outputs of information into the human system. So that is a great place to, to walk it back to, I think, is uh, getting people interested in the physics and the science and the material uh, edge of these types of conversations, which I feel factors a great deal into the, the flat earth argument, which I saw presented recently in a, in a more comedic, if not ironic sense, which was a, a flat earther providing an argument to basically uh, show that the earth was in fact flat when the video and the evidence itself showed that it was in fact round and he had created his own proof of the Earth being spherical in the process. He had tried to shoot footage of a, a city across a bay and show that since the buildings weren't tilted that the Earth wasn't round because he should be looking at a slight angular deflection because of the curvature of the Earth, when in fact the distance was not at all significant enough to create that curvature. What he did in fact see, though, was that the, uh, the lower first floor of the buildings across the bay were not visible because of that curvature that the beach was invisible. You can see the people on the shore or the, uh, the the street level of that opposing cityscape. So in a way, it's it's a challenge to science, to, to, to what we're doing and a lot of other people are doing in more significant ways, I think could uh, not solve all these problems, but could go a long way to, to creating a, a relative foundation of uh, interchange and communication and discussion about what to do about these problems that are clearly extant and well understood in terms of the physics by those who uh, study it. I want to get people yeah. excited about it. That's what you're doing with your with your routine now. Actually, is that whether people want to hear it or not, they're they're I'm sure probably getting a little bit intrigued and excited about that subject because you're talking about it and because it's funny. From my point of view, this this is a show about um, psychology as as much as anything, and and how how the human mind works. And really, psychedelics are kind of like a little bit of a trick um, to get people to to uh, <laughs> think about consciousness more which, which is a great great trick and and hopefully we'll we'll have to we won't have to rely so much on like gimmicks in the future like you you don't you won't need um stephen hawking to be this crippled guy to sell all these books to have like this amazing personal story to have people interested in in physics you won't need to uh, have a comedian write an entire show about psychedelics to get people to think about consciousness. People will just be able to do a joke about consciousness and then do a joke about a different thing, and people will just be used to hearing and thinking about these ideas, and, and even if they aren't used to it, be interested in new ideas, which um, definitely when you get masses together in, in like your regular comedy club and you're adding alcohol and everything else, there there is resistance to um, certain creative ideas and 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 things that that might seem like a little jarring or odd to people that i made the point in this last show which i hadn't talked about my show before which is like if you go into um you know neuroscience or psychology or biology human behavioral biology like a 101 course on the first day of class they're going to tell you you know your, your brain has these biased mechanisms and and our our perceptions are are flawed and but if you talk about that to your average person right now and this is first day 101 class stuff and if we talk about if i talk about this to like my family around around the dinner table at christmas they're gonna have a very hard time taking in what i'm what i'm talking about or or 
you know, not looking at me like I'm crazy. And that, and this is my family who's like wanting to appreciate what I'm saying. Is that due to the cognitive bias of not listening to you, members of your family? You know, my brother, God bless him, can tell me, the, you know, some profound wisdom and the fact that he's my little brother, uh, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. the fact that I'm his older brother and I've been like preaching to him for his entire right, life. Right, right. Like, yeah. hey, never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely, you know, when when you have grandparents who remember you when you were five, it's like, oh, this little kid doesn't know anything. <laughs> now he's telling but, me about my perceptual illusions. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is, uh, it's it's pretty indicative of, of the state of things, I would say, um, in just, a, say, a regular comedy club. My last album... Um, my big break was about breaking both my feet, but it really wasn't. I was working on an hour of material where I was talking about the psychology of negative emotions and why we why we retain kind of negative memories uh, more than positive ones. And I had all the material about this, and I was doing it. And it was going pretty well. Would sometimes get a little stale for people, or or just too, you know, they just weren't used to the ideas. And then I broke my feet, which fit very well into, uh, you know, negative emotions and, and pain perception and, and everything else. But what it really did was it opened people up. People would be like, oh, why is he on crutches? This is interesting. And it was, it was really, again, just like a gimmick um, that I was able to use to get people to start thinking about deeper ideas. And I'm looking forward to the time where we don't need gimmicks anymore. But I think we're a ways off from that. Well, uh, speaking of which, I'm not sure if you guys have seen this, but I was listening to uh, the Comedy Bang Bang podcast last night to an older episode from last year, and uh, Eugene Merman uh, was on talking about his new uh, 7LP comedy album and different formats in which it was released. And uh, two of the formats were uh, the album uh, On Chair and the album On Robe which was a chair with the speakers built in and the mp3 player built into the chair and a robe with earbuds built in and the mp3 player built into the robe. So <laughs> there are some opportunities, I think, for, for high novelty, ridiculous gimmicks that have not yet been touched that are in and of themselves hilarious. But yeah, uh, yeah. I think if it's tongue-in-cheek and like you own the gimmick, then uh, mm -hmm. I'm cool with that personally as like an observer and, and uh, uh, participant in the laughter of comedy, basically. Oh, yeah, no, I, I have nothing against these kinds of gimmicks necessarily. What's frustrating is how necessary they seem to be. That's all. I would rather them be an option than a necessity. Totally. But at the same time, you're working with an, an understanding of how we think as human beings. And like the way that we're, we're uh, biased is towards the storytelling. You know, and, and having a way to, to discuss all of these concepts about you know, psychology, emotion, you know, or this, all these drives that we have, it's really dry unless you can anchor it into something that's, that's got, uh, you know, like a visceral, immediate human quality to it. I, I agree with you. And, and I, I had, uh, you know, for my podcast, Here We Are, I interviewed um, these two, David Buss and Cindy Meston, who wrote a book, Why Women Have Sex. You'll see in pop science books, you'll see little anecdotes and stuff like that but they had you know all all these surveys from all these women and they went through and they would they'd pull out these very interesting quotes any anything from you know some woman wanted to 
uh, give her X herpes or something like that to, oh to, to the more obvious, like I had sex because it felt good or because I was turned on or because my, I was lonely or, you know, whatever it might be. But it was, it was different because rather than just breaking down, uh, you know, why we do that from an evolutionary point of view, which I'm very interested in, um, and have read lots of books on and everything else and I have enjoyed, but it, it did add this personal touch um, uh, to your point. I mean, I'm reading this book and it's like I have an erection while reading a science <laughs> book. Uh, you know, nerd alert! I know. So it was, sometimes I'll start crying to a song that's not sad at all. I just think that it's like beautiful or uh, a lot of times I like, I, if I tear up during like a movie or something, it's because I'm really impressed. Like Christopher Nolan movies get me for some reason. Like I see yeah. this twist, and I'm like, oh, that's such a beautiful twist, an idea. And there's nothing sad about it inherently, but uh, but yeah, it's, it just has that effect on me. But but yeah, so so you, even there, it would be rather than rather than talking about you know the science of how dreams work. That is an interesting way to make this movie that gets you thinking about like, oh yeah, dreams do kind of work like that. I cry in every single Disney movie when the, the the child is crying out for their lost parents every single time. And I'll be on a plane, you know, and they're showing it on the plane. Uh, what was it, the the Invincibles? And uh, yeah. that, that moment, or or uh, yeah, it just and I, and I know that it's it's working on me yeah, uh, yeah. below the threshold of my ability to be like, this is ridiculous. This is a movie. And that, but that's exactly, you know, that's, that's the thing that the propagandists have known for, for yeah. ever, ever is that, you know, we tend to, that when you tell a story, you identify with the protagonist, the protagonist is in opposition to something, you know? And so it creates this, like this immediate uh, sense of identity and you know, and, and then people are willing to pour themselves emotionally into that space, and there's there's a rhythm to the story, and that's just how we work. And it, you know, if you want to, uh, the other thing too, and I don't know, I don't know if you can, if you have any examples, if you've if you've thought about this consciously in writing your standups, but the other thing is that when you assert something as a fact, people get defensive, even if it's something they believe in. They're like, what you know. They, they're, they're ready to divide the world into, into you know, uh, arguments. But when you present it as a story, then it sinks in at that, yeah. that subliminal threshold level. This happens a lot. This is something I'm very mindful of. Um, this, this is, uh, so if I say, here is this study that says this, and uh, which sometimes I'll still do. It's, Sometimes it's like walking a line of of how much I need to validate this so that they don't think I'm crazy and then how much I need to engage. And um, I do find that a lot of times if you just instead present the idea of, of the negativity bias or whatever as being like, uh, isn't it weird how we always focus on these? on these bad memories or whatever, like you're coming up with this idea off the top of your head, you'll get a lot less pushback from that. And um, and I also liked the point that you made about movies. I'm glad that you made me walk back my anti-gimmick routine a bit because I was thinking about um, 
the Pixar movie Inside Out and, and how much I cried during that fucking movie. <laughs> it was beautiful. And, um, and, and, and what a wonderful representation of, of how, the, how the mind kind of works on a, on a basic level. Uh, so, so thanks for, for being on, uh, Shane. Anything else you wanted to, uh, to plug or mention before you go oh, today? I would say that it seems like from everything that I can tell from reading and learning and from psychedelics and from um, DMT is, is, is it seems like there's this, the, this way to kind of rage against the um, borders of existence that are kind of like bearing down on us all of the time that, that seem very limiting and, and uh, especially with kind of thought patterns. And, and I think there are ways to always continue challenging ourselves to keep on pushing against what we think is, is possible, not just in terms of technology, but what is, what is possible in terms of art and in terms of creativity, in terms of understanding and, um, and, and we can both expand um, our knowledge and deepen it um, at the same time. And, and just, uh, I, I, think, I think also as we become more mindful um, what we consciously want and what our, our non-conscious minds are driving us to do will become more in line. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. I don't think we're getting going to get to the finish line of any of that anytime soon. So I think that that will be perfectly valid singularity and onwards. Even robots much smarter than me, if they don't already think about this stuff, which they probably do, uh, it, it will still be valid for them. Right on. And they might be fascinated with your, your meat space, uh, meatware uh, articulation patterns and such. I think we often assume that, that robots will be disinterested because of our, uh, our bit rate, uh, while at the same token they might be all the more fascinated because of the uh, variability and analog mushiness in our, in our communications. So, um, I, I actually think that, uh, I, I actually always, whenever I hear about like the robot takeover or whatever, they're going to they're gonna enslave us once they're smarter than us, and I, well that's not what our pattern of behavior has been. It seems like the more intelligent we become, the more we care about smaller and smaller and simpler organisms and um, understand the importance of preservation and, and gaining understanding from what might seem like simpler intelligence. But that's kind of a whole other episode. For maybe, okay. maybe if Skynet has the ability to smell us, Skynet will care. <laughs> yeah. Because the smells are our, our fear and our compassion and our love and our humor and our fascination yeah. and happiness. Yeah. yeah, it takes a whiff of oxytocin and it's like, <laughs> you know what, these kids aren't so bad. Well, see, that's yeah. the thing. Is like there's the Elon Musk argument of you know the first priority in any, any development and, and uh, research into AI should be protection against and, and hedging against a, a wanton, potentially malevolent AI, whereas I feel it's equally possible personally that a sufficiently advanced artificial intelligence would look at us and come to the immediate conclusion that we should only be looked out uh, for and looked after in a way, you know? Uh, that That's our, what we do as we advance our understanding. Right, and our systems are far uh, from optimal in many ways, and a, a true artificial intelligence may immediately see ways to rectify certain inefficiencies in our systems that could benefit everyone, including itself, to a significant degree. And there is a certain level of socialism in true game theory, as I've seen it play out. You know, uh, uh, trees do this in sharing uh, 
certain uh, nutrients and uh, resources throughout their uh, ribosome or root structure, even to varying species of trees. In fact, because it protects the health of the forest as a whole and therefore the individual tree itself. So uh, thanks for being here for, for all of us, man. And, and yeah. So, you know, we are going to post your links in the, in the show notes for this. But if you want to give a shout out to anybody who found this through some other website or whatever, now's a good time to tell us where we can find your wonderful work. Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S dot com. Uh, I have my podcast, Here We Are Podcast dot com, where I interview scientists each week. And at Shane Comedy on Twitter. And you can find me on Facebook, too. I, I only use my fan page on Facebook. I don't want to get into it because Facebook irritates me and there's this weird system. But anyway, find, <laughs> yeah. find my fan page. We didn't even uh, get into our complaints yet about social media, which we started off uh, maybe touching on. But I think we, we very adeptly skirted. So uh, we share your yeah. frustration. Yeah. <laughs> this, this was more inspiring than enraging. And that probably puts everyone in a better mindset <laughs> for being open to new ideas. I hope so. Amen. I think so, yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show, man. And Thank you, guys. Michael, uh, I don't know if, uh, when the next time I'll see you is. Yeah, but, well, that's okay. You know, I think... That was a joke about how I'm in the next room. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you might run into him on the way to the bathroom or to get some toast in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right on, you guys. Have a good one. Thank you, brothers. Take care. Much love. probably won't figure it out. I mean, probably one person in their lifetime never really does. And maybe even as a species, we won't have it figured out when, uh, you know, the time comes, whatever that may be. But I think that's what it is. Um, ultimately, it's, it's a catalyst for humility.